Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I'd like to say a special welcome to our online guests. We are glad that you're with us as well today. Uh, this is our third week in our new series in the book of Jeremiah. And just to catch you up on kind of where we've been, uh, I gave a kind of overview and justification of why we were looking at the book. And then last week, we kind of uh, uh, sped through a justification for the Old Testament. And I'm hoping to, to scale back a little bit today on our pace and timing as we begin to talk about Jeremiah, the person, his life a little bit, and his call in particular. I have three broad aims for today. I'd like you to come away with, in broad terms, an understanding of 7th century BC geopolitics, which is the subject you thought this morning you were going to learn about when you woke up. Um, I'd also like you to understand Jeremiah's life within those geopolitics, how it's framed, and then an understanding of how his life and lessons apply to us. So I do think there is a, there's a direct application of, of what we'll look at in the text and where we are today. I'd like to begin with the reading of our text, which is the entire chapter of Jeremiah 1. It'll be on the screen behind me, but I'll read from my Bible with, from, directly from this part. So, it says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they will come, and they will set each other on each one on his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all its walls round about, and against all the cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Now, gird up your loins and arise, and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Okay. 
This is the beginning, of course, of the book of Jeremiah, and it gets us into the book. Now, last week, I gave a kind of tight or uh, a precise or short overview of Israel's history, and today I want to focus more deeply on the years that surrounded Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, if you're familiar and have read through the Bible before, you'll know that in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you get the history of the kings of Israel. And there's a kind of, uh, it can easily get kind of lost in the weeds. There are unfamiliar names, there are names that repeat, there are lots of details, there are events that happen, and there seems to be, um, there's lots of things that you can get lost in. And there's some unfamiliar cultural practices. Now, the study of that information is very valuable. It's worth your time, and it's worth us doing. Probably not very valuable right here in this space, because uh, we'll get too much in the weeds and we'll lose track of the kind of bigger picture that we need. So I'm going to frame my comments about this time period in some broad strokes. So the first thing I want to talk about is Israel's uh, geography and specific call. Uh, I've got a map up here, Israel. Um, um, I didn't bring a clicker with me. Oh, no, go back, please. No, go back. Great. Okay, so uh, this, uh, broadly speaking, this, of course, is the Mediterranean Sea. Most of you are familiar with this. Africa is on the south and uh, upwards of Europe over here. And a lot of stuff is happening. And Israel, of course, is in um, this little tiny spot uh, between Egypt and Mesopotamia, right along the coast of Mesopotamia, uh, right, uh, sorry, the coast of the Mediterranean right there. And that's Israel's uh, geopolitical kind of broad placement. Uh, now the next map. Uh, gets us close. So when you see the Mediterranean, you see, you see where this is happening. So Egypt, just to the south, and then Assyria and the Hittites, just to the north. I'll come back to this map in a moment. Um, if you were going to travel from Egypt and you wanted to get to the north, the desert was inhospitable. You didn't want to go through the desert, and so it was much easier to take the coastal route or some of the roads on the other side that took you through Israel. Um, or if you lived in, say, the Assyrian side and you wanted to access some of the wealth of Egypt or the abundant food that was there, you also didn't go through the desert because it was so hostile. You came through Israel. Okay? And so this kind of plot of land was somewhat uniquely placed. In fact, um, if you were going to conquer, excuse me, is this where I know? If you're going to conquer the known world, if that's one of your goals, you're going to avoid the desert where nobody lives, and you're going to focus on these areas. Israel's kind of placed in a major uh, transitory route. Now, ancient sources of life were often focused on water. Uh, so the Nile, uh, with its regular flooding, provided immense amounts of food, predictable food. You could predict the flooding, and so you could predict how to plant things. Uh, we didn't have the same levels of irrigation control that we do today. So um, Egypt's wealth was tied to the Nile, um, and the rise of nations, uh, nation states like Assyrian Bab uh, um, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire had to do with the rivers they were around, the Tigris and the Euphrates. That's why it's called Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. So um, Israel's given this plot of land by God, this unique little bit of space. But I think we have to remember the gift of this land in light of Israel's original call. So look with me again at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, it will be on the screen for us. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the, the critical thing is that God, 
remember, he calls Abraham out, Abram out of Ur, out of this kind of Assyrian area. He leads him to this promised land. He's giving him the land, but the promise is, in you, everyone on earth will be blessed. I'm not just blessing you. I'm not just raising you up so you can get good benefits. I've raised you up so that through you, I can do something to the rest of the world. And that tells me that something of the choice of Israel as a landmass is spiritually strategic. And if you're following along, I would say this. National Israel is ideally located to communicate the news about God to the world. It's ideally located. If you want to get from the major, any of the major population centers in the ancient world, whether it's from Egypt to Assyria or Assyria to Egypt, you've got to go through this plot of land. And you're going to pass through. It's, it's a highway. It's a place where people are going to be. And so God has a way of planning this, I think, when he gives this land to Abraham. Uh, let's move on. So uh, within this call, there's some flaky obedience. Israel has some quite flaky obedience. Uh, national Israel proves quite poor at fulfilling the call of Abraham. Uh, called to bless the nations, national Israel seeks to bless itself. Uh, rather than worship and obey the God who rescued and planted them in the space, Israel gets subverted by a number of factors. I'll highlight three of these factors briefly. Um, one of the factors that subverts Israel is, I think, nationalism. It's just nationalism. You know, uh, nation states, uh, all nations are human and temporary, right? And there's nothing special about the 49th parallel. If you walk down to the U.S.-Canadian border, there's nothing there, right? Like, you don't step across it and suddenly, <gasps> like, you feel different. It's, nothing happens. It's imaginary, isn't it? And so, but when we begin to make those borders sovereign or give them a sense of like, oh no, God planted this border, or then when we begin to give personality to nation states, we say, well, you know, what, what does Israel think as a nation? What does, what, you know, you begin to give identity and then you can do things. You can begin to prioritize the existence of something imaginary, a nation, over the individuals within it. Right? Well, you're not a very good Israelite. You don't do X or Y or Z. You're not a very good Canadian. You don't do this. And we begin to marginalize people in some of these ways. And that's one of the great dangers of these things. There's all the difference of the world between the people of God living in the land of Israel and the Israelite nation state. Massive difference. And in fact, a distinction that continues to confuse people today. People of God living in a space versus the space being itself um, sacred. A second thing that subverts them is fear. Um, under the influence of the surrounding nations, Israel's threatened, sometimes existentially, by a wide array of surrounding powers. I showed you the map, but there's Edomites, and there's Moabites, and there's Philistines, and there's Egyptians, and there's people who want a piece of what you've got. They want your wealth. They want your space. And in fear, the Israelite nation begins to look to their circumstances more than to God. It's a lot like Peter in the boat, remember? He can walk on water while he's looking at Jesus, but when he looks at the waves, he sinks. It's your attention on your circumstances or the God who sits above your circumstances. And fear is very crippling to the call of God. And then the third factor that I think um, puts Israel off God's call is idolatry. Um, idolatry, of course, is a false trust, but when it combines with nationalism and fear, it becomes quite toxic. Uh, and so in one sense, idolatry means hedging your bets, hedging your bets by appealing to powers other than God. 
I could trust in God only, but maybe a sacrifice to Moloch will get me something extra, right? Or maybe a little statue to Baal in my house as kind of a talisman. I can get that extra thing or I can do this good. And I, I think when we view idolatry as hedging your bets, I think you're seeing that, oh, I could radically trust in God or I could trust a little bit in myself or I could, oh, I could, you know, I, <laughs> I love that. Oh, boy. I love that scene in the, in the movie The Mummy when one of the bad guys, he's got every talisman imaginable on his neck, and he's hedging his bets. Well, I've got a cross, and I've got a Star of David, and I've got some Hindu stuff, and he can bring it up just in case he needs it. Um, we do this. We do this all the time. Okay? So how do these factors play out in Israel's history? Well, in the cycle of kings leading up to the time of Jeremiah, some of the kings are devout. Some of the kings are quite pagan. Uh, some attempt to bring Israel back to Yahweh. Others sacrifice to pagan gods to ensure success. They hedge their bets. And others play political games with their political rivals. It's a mess if you've read the books of Kings. An absolute mess. Uh, but Jeremiah 1, 1 through 3 tells us about the kings who reigned during his ministry. I'll just highlight these words again. Uh, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. I'm not going to read it, but the parallel record for you can be found in the book of 2 Kings, chapters 22, 3, 4, and 5. So if you want to read the, the background story to the whole book of Jeremiah, those chapters will cover that material for you. Now, Jeremiah lists three kings, but actually there are five in this time. So we've got Josiah, King Josiah, who reigns for 31 years, and then his son Jehoahaz, who reigns for only three months. Okay, so it's kind of a blip on the radar. Uh, followed by Jehoiakim, he reigns for 11 more years. Followed by Jehoiachin, who reigns for three months as well. And lastly, followed by Zedekiah, who reigns for 11 years. And he's the last king of Judah before the final deportation. Okay? So there's actually five kings, which tells you this is politically tumultuous. When you have kings reigning for three months, bad things have happened to them. Right? This, is, uh, this is political instability run amok in some ways. And I, I encourage you to read the Second Kings narrative. Now, Jer uh, Jeremiah tells us that his ministry kicks off during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah is one of the best kings in Israel's history. Absolutely one of the best kings. He's devout. He's faithful. His, uh, his, uh, his heart is dedicated to the Lord. And he makes a concerted effort to restore Israel to right relationship with God. So while he's king, uh, they're, they're ferreting around in the temple, and they find the book of the law, which some people think is Deuteronomy. It had been lost, and they read it for the first time in a long time. And as he's reading the book of Deuteronomy, there's this moment of saying, oh, well, literally, oh my God, what have we not done? We've lost all of these things, and uh, Josiah tears his clothes, and there's a moment of national repentance, and he leads a kind of repentance reform that runs throughout Israel. They reinstitute the Sabbath. They've been, I mean, sorry, the, the, um, the Passover. They've not been keeping the Passover. And then there are, there are idols in the temple. 
I mean, God's temple has been built, but there's idols to other gods in the temple. And they begin to kick them out. And then there's Israelites are sacrificing to people like Moloch and Baal in the other areas. And he's like, we got to get this stuff out of here. And so there's, this, uh, there's a, a reform movement from the very top, the apex of Israelite power at the time. And Jeremiah is a prophet in this time. He seems to be part of the reform movement. He gets sent out to preach the reform. Uh, and that's the beginning of his ministry. But we should point out that the reform doesn't take. And that with Josiah's death, everybody's back to normal. Or they're back to the way things were. Oh, he's gone. We can go back to sacrificing to other gods now. Uh, and so it says of the, we've got the list of those five kings, the four kings who follow, they all did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and so whatever uh, movements toward godliness Josiah um, affected, it wasn't enough to stay the judgment of God that was coming. Okay, the third big heading here is to talk about um, the threat of local empires. So framing all of this stuff, framing Israel's call and framing um, this narrative of kings who obey and don't obey, there is this broader picture of local empires. And there are three that we need to talk about briefly. So to the far north, this is, I'm, I'm afraid this map is the best I could find. It's still a little confusing to interpret like how the, how the colors layer upon one another. And if you're colorblind, I'm terribly sorry. Um, so um, there is an Assyrian empire that kind of, um, uh, well, I don't know which one's the red. I can't even tell myself. But <laughs> there's, there's an Assyrian empire. It's one of the first empires. And actually, uh, the Assyrians, as far as I can tell, were one of the very first ever uh, groups to attempt empire. Uh, when you're reading the Bible, you'll see this in the ancient world. Um, nations are bound by, oh, we're the sons of Anak, or we're the sons of Abraham, or there's a kind of uh, familial boundary. And it doesn't seem to enter into people's minds that, oh, I'll take over this land and make it mine. Like, I'll ex like the, the family idea is too strong. Why would I take over? Like, you would just obliterate people. You wouldn't take them in. And so the Assyrians are the first who begin to think about this. Think about what does unity look like based on power rather than ethnicity? How do I advance these things? And uh, there are some characteristics of empire that are pretty standard. Uh, one is an organization and a technology of communication. Uh, you have to be administratively powerful. Uh, there is apparently a, 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 a fresh... A uh, fresh rise of literacy about the time of the Assyrian Empire, which means that, you know, if, if everything is orally communicated, that's one thing, but if you can send messages, you can use information technology to ensure empire. Uh, and so there are changes in terms of how technology is using at the time. There is a, a military power. Uh, there were advances. This is the second Iron Age, and there's advances in military technology the Assyrians had power with. And then, in addition to this, there's ideology. A belief in yourself as a state, but also religious justification for these things. And these things combine to make empire possible. Uh, technology and administration, military power and ideology. And then you advance. And I think if you look at other empires, you'll find that these features are present in them as well. Uh, but once you gather this kind of wealth and power, like the Assyrians did, you become a target. You've just gathered all, you've gathered all this money, you've plundered the nations, and then they're like, well, I want it. And so other people rise up to take it. So Assyria, the Assyrian Empire is in this space. Uh, following them was the Babylonian Empire. Uh, this is uh, Babylonia's southern Iraq, I believe. Uh, Babylon is, uh, I think, within shooting distance of Baghdad. Um, 
And so you have the Babylonian Empire coming, and they begin to advance. And then the third empire is the Egyptian Empire. The Egyptian pharaohs, they seem to be kind of focused on themselves. They're a bit landlocked. Uh, there's some, you know, the, the Sahara makes it hospitable, the Arabian de- inhospitable, the Arabian desert makes it inhospitable. Um, but once, you know, once you smell money, you begin to be interested in other people's money. And so the pharaohs saw opportunities for money in trying to fight with the Babylonians. And what happens is Israel becomes uh, a kind of pawn between empires, used back and forth. If the Assyrians want Egyptian food, they're going to work through Israel. If the Egyptians want uh, Babylonian money, they're going to go through Israel. And so Israel and the other nations get used in this kind of empirical, um, empiric, anyway, the empire game that people play in these moments. So into and within these events, we get Jeremiah's life. And Jeremiah operates as a prophet in Judah. That's the 7th century, just to give you a broad heading. There you go. That's, that's what you didn't expect to hear about this morning when you got up. That's the 7th century B.C. Let's talk about Jeremiah's life within that. Uh, he operates as a prophet in Judah, and I want to highlight some key elements in his life, not give you a play-by-play. So it tells us first that he was um, of the priests of Anathoth. Anathoth is not far from Jerusalem, just to the north. And it sounds like he comes from a priestly family. He grows up in a religious upbringing. That's his background. Uh, But he doesn't become a priest um, for some reason. He begins his prophetic call during the kingship of Josiah, as I said, during Josiah's religious renewal and reform. And he is one of the people who preaches that reform to Israel. And it was never made him popular, right? In fact, it made him distinctly unpopular. Uh, We read in Jeremiah 11 that there's a plot to kill him coming from the men of Anathoth. That's from his hometown. So he preaches the reform of the king in his hometown, and his hometown says, we should kill you because of this, Uh, which maybe should echo you to Jesus saying a prophet is um, not welcome but in his hometown, right? There's some echoes here. So let me read for you Jeremiah 11, verses 21 and 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, Jeremiah's hometown, who seek your life, they're trying to kill you, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord so that you will not die at our hand. Therefore, so in other words, stop prophesying or we'll kill you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters will die by famine, and a remnant will not be left to them, for I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. I want to pause and mention, so the men of Anathoth see Jeremiah preaching, and they say, hey, stop preaching or we'll kill you. And the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, God's going to kill you because of this, (laughs) right? Like, God doesn't pull him away. He puts him right into the middle of the fire. Uh, which probably characterizes a lot of Jeremiah's ministry in these ways. Now, throughout his life, he operates as a public prophet, which was an office, a kind of expected office in ancient Israel. And there's expected language. Uh, The prophets typically use phrases like, thus says the Lord. You've heard it. The Lord says, and he speaks for God. Uh, There is, when you read Jeremiah, frequent use of props, um, very, vo- very vivid props. In fact, I think that Dave Sattler has the spirit of the prop-using prophet on his ministry, right? And so uh, Jeremiah shows up in one place with a wooden yoke to say, in this way, God will you know, uh, put you under the oppression of the Babylonians. Another prophet comes and breaks the yoke, and then he comes back with an iron yoke. He says, now break this, right? Like it's, 
is really kind of pushes it forward. Or there's other props, like there's, a, there's linen that he buries in sand and it gets destroyed. And uh, there's wordplay. We saw this earlier. I see an almond tree and there's plays on words between how he does things. There's an expected language and mode for which prophets uh, do things. And then a third thing is that there's an, also an expectation that the prophet will be available for political counsel. So if, if you are in uh, civil authority, you're a king, you consult the prophets for advice. What does the Lord have to say about this decision or what's going on? And so there's an availability, uh, and you'll see that in Jeremiah's story as well. Now, throughout his life, Jeremiah is never appreciated as a prophet. Never. His entire life, he has this outsider status. He's hated. He's ostracized. People try to kill him. Um, it, it never makes him popular. There are people who acknowledge his, his, his status. There are people who are his friends. He's not totally alone. Uh, but by and large, it's a very alienating experience. Although it seems like they don't doubt his call. At no point are they like, you're not really a prophet. They know he's a prophet. They just hate him okay, within this. Uh, and Jeremiah is candid about this. Chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, um, he turns to the Lord. Oh, Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. I've obeyed you and everyone hates me. Thanks a lot, God. Okay. Um, and Jeremiah is very honest. And I think um, <laughs> it's a good news for us that Jeremiah gets to be very honest about the difficulty of being obedient. Okay. Um, in one event, and this is a profound event, Jeremiah uh, writes his prophecy out, or doesn't, Baruch, the scribe, writes the prophecy out, takes it to the king, and after every section of it's written, they cut a strip off and burn it publicly. Just as if to say, no, no, we don't care about this as well. And then Jeremiah goes, and he writes the scroll again, and then he says, and he adds many more words as well, so he makes it even longer. Uh, he's got this attitude of like, oh, you're going to fight? I'm going to step right into it. There's a boldness uh, that grows in him. Eventually, at responding or paying attention to the geopolitics of the age, Jeremiah preaches messages. He says that Israel should surrender to Babylon. So in the midst of empire and self-identity and existence, Jeremiah says, it's time to give up which is a message that nobody wants to hear. And the apex of this hatred is he gets thrown into a cistern where they leave him to die. Um, he's eventually rescued, but um, this is a low point in Jeremiah's life. At the end of life, he's deported along with the other Israelites to Egypt, although he prophesies that after 70 years, Israel will return. And this is part of his prophetic life. So Jeremiah has quite a difficult life. And the whole thing begins with his call. And I want to turn our attention to that call right now. Uh, when God calls him, Jeremiah has no idea what he's in store for, right? The word of the Lord comes to me. He has no idea how hard it's going to be and how difficult it's going to be looking forward. Uh, but let's look again at these verses. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So he's young. We don't know how young, 16, 20. Uh, it looks like he's unmarried. He'll never marry. He'll be single his whole prophetic life. Uh, but he has an experience. The word of the Lord came to me. I have no idea what this experience was like for him. What does it mean for the word of the Lord to come to someone in this way? 
Uh, later, chapter 20, verse 7, he describes it as a fire in the bones. I'll try to hold it in, but it burns within me. I have to let it out. I can't hold God's word inside. It's some kind, apparently, of powerful experience, a pressure, a knowledge of what God wants him to say that's translated into Jeremiah's own words for the people. But the first thing God says to Jeremiah is that before he was born, he was chosen. I knew you in the womb, right? This is maybe a surprise to you, but it's no surprise to me. I put you in this place for this time, for this call. And so Jeremiah's call is anchored on the fact that God knows him and knows him deeply. I think that's very important. And note the scope. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He's not a prophet just to Israel. The call of Israel is to bless the nations, and Jeremiah's messages are not just to Israel, but to the whole surrounding world around him. He prophesies to Babylon, to Assyria, to Egypt. Uh, these, he's concerned. God's concern is for the whole world, not just the 90-mile strip of land on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Next passage, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Then I, Jeremiah, said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Uh, given that his family tries to kill him later, his fears are justified. He's, he's right to be afraid, because everyone hates him and wants to kill him for the stuff that he's doing. Uh, but the reasons he gives are, I'm young. I don't have the chops. I don't have the authority. How can I stand up and go toe-to-toe with the stuff around me? What are you asking me to do? Uh, think again. He's a young man in a priestly family who's been called by God to condemn his own family's priestly practice. That's setting himself against the family business? There's, that's tough. It's a tough call, and he knows it. Uh, that's a hard place to be. But... God says, nope, don't say it, because I'm sending. And even here, you have to rely on the one calling and not on what you see around you. And this leads us to a question of our own, which is this. Does fear keep you from God's call? Fear threatened to derail Jeremiah from God's call. Does it keep you? It's the fear of what might happen. The fear of what people might say. The fear of losing friends and influence and benefits. Well, we have to take courage from Jeremiah. He didn't have experience. He didn't have age. He didn't have degrees. All he had was some obedience to the Almighty. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, I want to point out that for Jeremiah, prophecy appears not to be just verbal impressions, um, I, I don't, and I don't know what's happening. Is he seeing a live vision of the Lord doing this? Um, is he having dreams? Possibly. I, I don't have to take a position on this, but he's receptive to God, and he's, he knows when God's speaking and when he's not. And he knows and understands uh, what's the message. But with the word of God that's been placed in his mouth becomes a portion of God's authority. And it says uh, to pluck, to break down, to destroy and overthrow, and also to build and to plant. 
I think as an aside, there are a number of people today who want to style themselves as prophets. They want to have uh, the attitude and demeanor of the kind of Old Testament prophet. They want to condemn and they want to shout God's news. And I think they miss that the other half of the prophetic call is to plant. It's not all destruction. It's also sowing seeds that can grow. It's what's God doing after this? What's the good that God has in store? Um, and I think that when we think about uh, all the anger of an Old Testament prophet, we miss the, all the good news of an Old Testament prophet. Behold, I am doing a new thing. It's also the words of the prophet. In addition to, behold, I am coming uh, to lay waste to your hopes. Okay? That was my own version of it, and that's, you can, that's the book of Jeremy, and you can ignore that. Okay. okay. Now, after this call... Uh, God focuses the call on Jeremiah's life. And I'm going to read again verses 11 through 19 um, for you. And I'm going to focus on the last verses, but I'll read that because we're going through it. The word of the Lord came to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. There's a play on words here. And so the almond, almond and watching sound alike. And so God is teaching Jeremiah um, how he's going to speak through a kind of association. It's very interesting. Uh, the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Again, a word play. And then the Lord said to me, out of the north, the evil will break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one his throne at the entrance to the gates of Jerusalem and against its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. So to set up your throne at the entrance is to establish yourself as the conqueror of a place. So the north is coming, the empire to the north is coming, and they will conquer. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. So in other words, these foreign nations are coming to conquer Israel as God's punishment on Israel's rejection of God. Okay? God is using the foreign nations to punish Israel for Israel's disobedience. And this is the message Jeremiah is to carry. Now, verse 17 to the end. Now gird up your loins and arise, and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, and as a pillar of iron, and as walls of bronze, against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. Given the circumstances that you already know about Jeremiah's life, this is quite an astonishing call. Given the way that his life will transpire and the pain that he will be led to go through and the difficulties, it's amazing what God has set to do in this young man, Jeremiah. And I want to focus for a moment on just verses 17 through the end. Now, gird up your loins and arise. Get yourself ready, young man. Pull up your pants. Here we go. Okay? Speak to them all which I command you. Don't hold back, man. I've put my word in your mouth. Speak the word I've given you and speak it fully and fulsomely. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. The more you trust in me, the more confidence I will give you. And if you waver before them, I will lay waste to you. This is a radically challenging call. Now behold, I have made you today, and he uses the military imagery of the day. I made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron, 
and his walls of bronze. I mean, in living memory, the conquest of the Assyrians over the northern kingdom has happened. And the Assyrian Empire had immense military power, and they were quite vicious in how they did these things. And so the ideas of cities and defenses and ramparts was vividly present in Israelite minds. But here, God is saying to him, no, I will make you, the person who trusts in me, these impenetrable defenses, if you trust in me. And I will make these things against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, its priests, and to the people of the land. They think, they think, that the enemy is the Assyrian Babylonian Empire. What they don't realize is that their enemy is me, the Lord God, because they've abandoned me. And now I've appointed you as my one-man army to go out and tell them what I'm going to do. They will fight against you, he says, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This brings us to our world and our call. And I'd like us to hear, as we come to a close, Jeremiah's call as a call to us. Because we also have been given a mission by Almighty God, a mission to reach the world with the good news of the gospel. We also, like the Israelites, are uniquely placed, aren't we? We don't have to go very far to reach the world, to reach the nations, to see all the people that God has brought to us. They're right here at our doorsteps. And like him, we don't have, we don't have the comfort of um, one religious background. We live around apostasy. People not only who worship other gods and other false gods, but people who believe that their worship of Yah- anyway, they, are, they corrupt the Christian faith to their own ends and purposes. It's not longer the word of God. And in the midst of this, we've received a call, a call to obey and follow, much like Jeremiah's call. But that call will come with inevitable hardship. And in this respect, I think Jeremiah's call is a call for us. Will we sell out for God or will we hedge our bets? Will we trust fully in the word of God or will we kind of half trust? And I think like the prophet Jeremiah, we will find that our being sold out for God will make us aliens and strangers. So I've got three bolded headings in your notes, and as I thought about the end of this sermon, I realized that those three things are the questions that we all have to face ourselves. We are well-placed. Israel was, national Israel was, was ideally located to communicate the good news about God to the world. You know what, NSA? We are ideally located to communicate the message of God to our city. Okay? And like them, uh, there is an empire and powers around us that are not favorable to our mission. But it doesn't matter, because our mission comes from God and not from ourselves. And like them, I think we are tempted to hedge our bets. Right? Hedge our bets are being sold out. A little compromise here, a little half measures there. We could be accepted and liked by other people. We can put aside those little doctrinal bits that make us awkward and unpleasant, right? Oh, we don't need those things. We can just lay it aside and not talk about it. But that's hedging our bets, right? That's trusting in our power rather than God's. And like them, we could be tempted to fear. And fear can keep us from our obedience. So I don't want to leave you with such a heavy thing, but I think these are heavy questions we have to ask. Have we acknowledged the call 
upon us? And are we aware of the danger of hedging our bets? And where does fear keep us? Because if Jeremiah's call can be ours, if we lean into the word of God, he will meet us. And he will defend us. And he will make us as walls of bronze and pillars of iron. And he will fight on our behalf. And then it's not your power anymore, is it? I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their places. And for this time of worship that we have now, we've got two songs. We have time uh, to sanctify ourselves to the Lord, to rely on him maybe in a fresh way, to trust in his word and his goodness and his call. And I invite you to that place and posture today. I also invite you to take advantage of our prayer ministers. I've got Craig and Wendy, uh, Tim, uh, who are going to be back over here in the alcove. And I have uh, Val and Janice up in the balcony. Um, and they'll be right back here by the door. And the reason they're in those places is because it's easier to hear, not because we hide prayer. Um, and that's important. But I invite you for prayer for any reason whatsoever, uh, whether you are, you've been touched and you need to hear from the Lord, um, whether you are in need of physical healing and would like someone to pray for you, or whatever is going on in your life and you'd like some encouragement, I encourage you to go for prayer. Would you please stand with me and I'll pray before we sing. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the ministry of your servant, Jeremiah. I thank you for his faithfulness, and I pray, Lord, that we can look to him as a model for our faithfulness. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus, to be as obedient and as bold as he was. This I ask in your name, Lord. Amen.